Thank you very much, uh, Aiga, for the very lovely uh, introduction. <laughs> so thank you very much to the organizers to invite me to, to moderate the first symposium of uh, this uh, third international conference for clinical research 2020. Just maybe as an introduction for, for, for the speakers that we had uh, very interesting lessons learned from Malaysia on COVID-19 this morning from different uh, perspectives, uh, from the overall perspective of the Director General, but also then uh, for the Deputy Director General who is responsible for the surveillance and response and the director, Deputy Director General who is just responsible for hospital and forecasting the, the, and, and planning uh, the hospital care for COVID-19. So uh, with, without further ado, I would like, um, we have a very a diverse uh, program at, uh, this, this afternoon in the symposium about public health, um, collateral damage, uh, then about modeling and projections and uh, how to use those and, and also myth busters. And, uh, uh, and then something about uh, one session, uh, one presentation around artificial use of artificial intelligence in, in, in healthcare and in particular uh, in the context of COVID-19. So I would like to introduce the first speaker is uh, Dr. Yap Wei Aoun, um, probably very well known to many of you, who is a health systems analyst um, in Malaysia. He has worked uh, for years um, with the World Bank uh, in internationally, but also locally, and has done some consultancies also for WHO and other agencies. So with that, uh, I would like to give the floor to Wei On. Over to you. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Lo, and thank you very much to the organizers for the invitation to speak at this 13th NCCR on the topic of uh, public health collateral damage arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and actually, I just want to start out with an analogy, which might be quite an unusual analogy for COVID. So this is a picture of a total solar eclipse. It's a very short moment in time, a time when the Earth, uh, the Sun, Earth's Moon and the Earth are aligned. And the Earth, from the Earth, the Moon appears to pass in front of the Sun and eventually it totally obscures the Sun. And when it does, despite the darkness all around, something very beautiful happens. And let me just uh, click that. And we see a solar corona, the previously overwhelming rays of the sun, which are so bright that we can see nothing else. They get blocked and the outer atmosphere of the sun, which is incidentally called the solar corona, uh, just like the coronavirus, it appears. And more importantly, because there's a research conference, the sun then becomes something which can be studied. And this is the irony of a solar eclipse. So similarly, the COVID-19 pandemic I know it's a really a big deal, it's a tragedy, and I do not mean to lessen its significance, but I would argue that it's not the only tragedy that we are facing. There are bigger elephants in the room, pervasive health issues, there's climate change, there's even now the threat of nuclear war, large problems which will affect our lives and livelihoods in tremendous ways. In this analogy, COVID-19 is like our moon, smaller than the sun, which it will obscure for a moment during the eclipse. And when for this period, COVID-19 takes on front and center stage, obscuring the constant glare of pervasive health issues, it actually reveals something of the latter which we would otherwise not fully appreciate. And indeed, COVID-19 already has been a great revealer, shedding light on our public and private health, and more broadly on the strengths and weaknesses of the healthcare system. Uh, allow me just to extend this analogy just a bit further. 
first on timeliness. By its very nature, a solar eclipse is a temporary phenomenon. There's a limited window of opportunity to collect data and to make use in the case of COVID-19 of the temporary but very dramatic shifts in behaviors and indicators, which can be very useful for making causal inferences and for research purposes. And I'm sure that one of the speakers, Richard Jones, will talk about that and how useful that can be for AI. Second, creativity. These are really not usual times. We are used to conducting research as a distant, uninvolved, uh, unaffected observer. But not, not only do we now have to take precautions to protect ourselves and others, but the usual methods of conducting research would need to be adapted. And alternative data sources may become critical as we're operating in what is essentially the fog of war. The third part of this analogy or this extension of this analogy is be wary of myths. Um, eclipses have fueled myths for much of human history and more so than ever, we need to be focused on science and not wedded to any prior assumptions. So let me start out by attempting some perspective on this issue by looking at deaths. Globally, there are approximately 800,000 deaths directly attributed to COVID-19 to date. Uh, and by contrast, The, the baseline expected number of deaths globally in a six-month period based on the, the global crude death rate is about 30 million. In Malaysia, there are just over 100 deaths attributed to COVID-19 to date. But by contrast, in a six-month period, we would expect about 81,000 deaths over a six-month period. Now, you may say that these deaths are inevitable. It's, it's people who are dying of old age. But for Malaysia, we actually have an additional data point, and that is amenable deaths. Deaths which actually could have been saved through public health and healthcare. These would be, for example, road traffic accidents, premature complications of NCDs, and these number quite a hefty 35,000 over a six-month period. Now, I know this is a very, very incomplete picture. I accept that. We do not know the counterfactual for COVID-19 direct deaths had there been no interventions. Nor do we know the indirect impact of COVID-19 on deaths, although this is being studied. Furthermore, deaths are not the only relevant outcome. There are other health or non-health outcomes. And we are still really in the midst of the pandemic. It's, it's still at the early stage and we are very far from a final tally. COVID-19 is really significant for sure, but we would be missing a very important story if we ignore its indirect impact or if we ignore the elephant in the room, which is the sun, which has been temporarily obscured by the moon, which are pervasive health issues which have formed and will continue to form the backdrop of humanity's progress. It's hence, I think, very ironic, but actually very prescient to start off this COVID-19 research conference by talking about COVID-19's indirect or collateral impact. So in this talk, I just have two areas that I will touch upon. The first is a simple framework describing the direct and indirect pathways by which COVID-19 can affect health outcomes. I know it can affect a lot of other, other outcomes, but we'll focus on health outcomes. And second, I'll try and map ongoing research initiatives, which I'm aware of, which are exploring some of these pathways. The basic question here is, what are all the possible pathways by which COVID-19 can affect health outcomes? And I'll discuss this firstly at the individual level and then at the population level. So the first pathway is direct. It's mediated by the disease process itself. And we're not thinking only of death, but also other outcomes, for example, disability. We are not thinking about outcomes only in the short term, but also long-term sequelae, including sequelae which we do not currently know about.
We are not confined just to res the respiratory system, but we have to think about all systems. So depression, chronic fatigue, PTSD, stigma, guilt, amputations from prolonged ICU stays, uh, chronic lung disease, renal failure, all these are very relevant, direct, uh, directly mediated uh, impacts uh, of COVID-19 on individual health outcomes. Very importantly, and I think we all know this, um, the morbidity and mortality of COVID is really modulated by comorbidities. Pre-existing conditions such as hypertension and diabetes and obesity, these have had a very big impact on COVID-19 outcomes. And this probably a big part of the story, which is why I've made the arrow sticker. Uh, is COVID-19 a, a communicable disease crisis or is it an NCD crisis? Well, as with the analogy of the solar eclipse, COVID-19 has revealed an NCD crisis more clearly. Another very important pathway is healthcare itself rather than the disease. Healthcare itself can affect health outcomes. Doctors may make mistakes, which is understandable as we are testing out new treatments uh, for a new disease. Uh, we do not know the efficacy and safety of these yet, but, uh, but we, have ha we have to make decisions. So harm may actually be caused iatrogenically. Perhaps patients may be delayed in their discharge because of tests and they develop something else, a nosocomial infection, a DVT, or maybe even depression if it takes too long. Um, sorry. Um, and then it also changes an individual's health-related behaviors. Indivi uh, behaviors such as health-seeking, health-promotive, and health-preventive behaviors. And some of this, and let me say this again, some of this may actually be for the better. It may be for the better. We may be, for example, more careful with our diets. And I believe exhibit number one for this is uh, the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, who nearly died of COVID-19. And subsequently for that, from that, he declared war on obesity. So not all the, Im the impact of COVID-19 is going to be negative. Some may actually be positive. Uh, another very important pathway is through an individual or household social economic situation. I think we are very aware of this. If an individual loses a job, faces financial catastrophe, or even just forgoes opportunities for education and to build up their human capital, this will affect health outcomes eventually. It may take a longer time, but I'm sure some of these effects will eventually be seen. Um, I think we have heard of uh, some stories, anecdotes perhaps, of tragic suicides related to people losing their jobs during this period. Um, so I think this is very relevant and I've made it a thicker arrow. Um, finally, no, no man or woman is an island. Hence, we need to see this also from the population level, which I will discuss in the next slide. So the basic question here is, what are the pathways by which a population affected by COVID-19 results in change health outcomes at the population level? And again, we have the pathway which is mediated through the healthcare system, resulting in changes in excess or changes in the effectiveness or perhaps quality, maybe another term for this, the effectiveness of care. Um, and this happens both in the short term and in the longer term. So in the short term, we have the burden of COVID-19 cases on the healthcare system, resulting in diversion of resources, cancellation in elective cases. I'm sure I don't need to repeat this. I think this is well known. Healthcare workers may also be quite fatigued. In the longer term, the healthcare system actually adapts. There may be new ways of delivering care, new technologies, artificial intelligence, as I think we will learn about, telemedicine, virtual clinics. We may develop uh, new capacities, vaccine development, diagnostics, etc. Um, 
But what are also the implications on human resources for health in the long term? There may even be new interest in public health as a career pathway, but we, there may also be losses of life, maybe not so relevant for Malaysia, but I hear it in some other countries. There's significant losses of life in terms of uh, health workers. Um, their training may also be disrupted. So these are all important uh, aspects of this pathway. Um, well, health behaviors can also change at a population level and that can also result in different health outcomes. So it can be different health-seeking behavior. People may be avoiding hospitals because of fear of the virus. Uh, there may be changes in treatment preferences. So for example, I've heard anecdotes of people, of cancer patients preferring chemotherapy or opting for chemotherapy instead of surgery, even when surgery is advised. There may be ex additional excess barriers, for example, due to testing requirements, which as far as I'm aware, is not even covered by private insurance. Um, these behaviors may also affect other infectious diseases like other respiratory illnesses like influenza. That's probably going to go down together with uh, all the other respiratory illnesses just due to the people's change in behavior during the lockdown. But how about an infectious disease like dinghy? Is that going to go up or down? We do not know. Now I hear tantalizing preliminary data that for some conditions, and the example I want to cite is premature births. And globally, I understand this has decreased quite dramatically. And this is being studied. One of the potential hypotheses is that perhaps there's some unknown viral infections which are causing premature deliveries. And when we have the lockdown, it gets rid of these unknown viral illnesses uh, and we have a reduction in premature births, another positive effect perhaps. Um, health promotive and health preventive behaviors uh, are going to change significantly. People may start eating at home more. Uh, whether that becomes more healthy, they, they give themselves more salt or less salt, we're not sure. Um, exercise, well, I talk from, from my own personal experience, I think that's gone down. Stress perhaps has gone up. Uh, what about smoking? What about road traffic accidents? Well, let me also say that there are indications globally that the expected number of cardiovascular deaths or ca cardiovascular emergencies, so for example, strokes and heart attacks, probably did not occur. Um, and this is not taught to be purely due to fear of excess. That means people had their heart attacks at, and strokes at home and just didn't come to hospitals. But there's a possibility there's an actual decrease in incidence. And this is an opportunity for further study. What's the implications of isolation at home? Um, more time with the family perhaps, but there's also reported increased domestic abuse. All these affect population health outcomes. Now, importantly, there's a very, a, a very significant pathway which is beyond the health sector. And this is what happens through the economic through economics and through human capital accumulation. What's going to happen when people lose jobs or if they don't lose jobs, what's, what, what about a reduction in income? What about poverty or displacement? What if they are foregoing accumulations in human capital, which for children is quite important if they're, um, if they're, if they're facing a, a financial shock when they're young, they may be undernourished. Schools have been closed for months, so there's foregone educational opportunities. What's the long-term population health outcomes of that? Um, at the aggregate level, this can also affect how the healthcare system is financed. I know that the WHO and World Bank are looking at this because health systems are expected to face health financing pressures due to contracting economies and also contracting household budgets. Finally, there's the external causes and environmental causes. Now, COVID-19 impact has been so far-reaching and broad. It has fueled even great power competition between the US and China, for example, and it's brought back geopolitics. What are going to be the public health consequences of war or even nuclear war, right? Um, the US withdrew from the WHO. What are the consequences on public health for that? And what about pollution? 
I know some pollution has been averted in terms of uh, people taking less flights and telecommuting instead of commuting. Um, and there may be a, uh, the lockdown has reduced the uh, travel. Uh, but there's also been increased pollution in form of packaging and uh, dispose, uh, disposable of PPEs. Trade and travel, that's also going to have a lot of economic effects, effects on human capital, on behaviors, on everything. So basically, there are a lot of there are really a lot of pathways by which COVID-19 can affect health outcomes beyond the health sector. Allow me to make two added points. Um, I've said them again before, but let me emphasize, not all the effect of COVID-19 is going to be negative. Some may be positive, some may even be both, and there's a lot of scope for research. Uh, also, because we're looking at population health outcomes, it is not sufficient just to look at the aggregate impact. We need to look at the distribution of the impact on equity issues. Okay, this is nearly the, the second last slide, I believe. Um, there's not a systematic review of the current research on COVID-19's impact on Malaysia, but just really a selection of ongoing studies that I'm aware of. Apologies if anything has been missed. Um, I was really fascinated because they all had really uh, cool names, if you, if you like, and I thought maybe when people are locked down, the researchers start being more creative and think of it of interesting names. So the first one, just to mention these very quickly, is a situational analysis of clinic of the clinic appointment system during the new normal. Um, and this is an online survey of public acceptance. And I've, I've put like uh, light bulbs, I don't know if you can see that, where roughly in the pathway the, the, these uh, research initiatives fit. Um, the next one is an analysis of COVID-19's impact on the provision of routine clinical care. Um, and so this is also an online survey. Uh, it involves the healthcare workers and the general public. Uh, it covers both public sector and private sector facilities, which I think is great. Um, and the authors have kindly, thank you very much, have shared some preliminary findings. I'm not going to display them, but I'll just verbally say that outpatient services have been most affected and there's been a very large drop in demand during the MCO period. Um, the third one that I want, want to mention uh, is on temporal trends in the rate of hospital admissions, outpatient visits, and procedures performed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and this is based on administrative data and also looks at the public and private sector, which I think is great. And finally, we have death in the time of corona, which looks at the final endpoint. It looks at all-cause mortality during the pandemic with breakdowns by age groups. Um, the data source is administrative and the counterfactual is past temporal trends, i.e. since 2016 to 2019. And the authors also have kindly shared some preliminary findings. Um, and basically, it shows that all-cause mortality overall does not appear to have increased. In fact, it possibly has decreased. And if this is not an artifact, the, the decrease appears to be quite dramatic for Malaysia. It appears to be like a halving in the, in the death rates. But this could also just be due to changes in the way deaths are reported during the MCO. But if it's true, it's very interesting to study. Um, and it's also interesting to note that the reduction actually happened just before, not when the lockdown was instituted, it actually happened before. So it's possibly not even due to government action, but even people's behaviors itself. So I've tried to map out all these initiatives um, on this framework as shown, and I just want to share some observations. Firstly, um, most of the research is cent remains centered on health outcomes which are affected through the healthcare sector. 
This is our research comfort zone. The data sets we've access to, they're all within the health sector. So we just study the health sector, right? Um, secondly, the data sources are predominantly online surveys uh, and opportunistic use of administrative data. But unfortunately, I have not yet heard of attempts to go beyond traditional data sources and data sets. For example, big data generated through the technologies that helped us going through the lockdown, um, data sets beyond the health sector. So to me, this is an opportunity. There's also a worthy attempt to include the private sector. This is really critical. The private sector makes up half the health sector in terms of expenditures. Uh, the Ministry of Health is the regulator of the private sector and hence it has the power and it has the mandate to shape the nature of administrative data needed. Data not only for regulatory purposes, but also to inform policy. So in other words, to feed into research for the sake of informing policy. Okay, this is the last slide and I just want to conclude and allow me to conclude with just three takeaway messages. Firstly, Health does not exist in isolation to other sectors. Much of the damage, even damage to health outcomes, will be indirect and will not be mediated by the disease process itself, but beyond health. Please do not miss these pathways when evaluating COVID. Um, secondly, the impact of COVID-19 will be long-term. So from a research standpoint, now is actually the chance. It's a narrow window of opportunity. Remember the solar eclipse to plan a systematic analysis of COVID-19's impact and what it can reveal about our public health and healthcare system. So not just about COVID. Don't just study the moon. The sun becomes studyable during a solar eclipse. And the insights it can reveal about other diseases as well. Thirdly, some impact will actually be positive. So explore a variety of outcomes, be curious, be creative, and don't just look at aggregate impact, but impact on the distribution as well. So now I hope that uh, whenever you think about the coronavirus, which is a 100 nanometer diameter scale, I would like you all to also think of the analogy of the solar eclipse, which is on the million kilometer scale. Um, think about how the act of obscuring something big temporarily helps us to appreciate and learn much more about it. Because our challenge is not only to address COVID-19, but the broader and pervasive challenges, health challenges of our time. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Yap, uh, for your uh, very thought-provoking uh, presentation. Um, so for those who would like to ask a question who are online, you could go to the Q&A uh, chat box and ask your question there um, or to the normal chat box, but uh, ideally the, to the Q&A. So if there are questions, and please do introduce yourself um, uh, before you type the question if possible. Um, so a question actually from Richard Jones uh, from our panel, um, are there particular, uh, so Richard Jones is uh, from, is the President and Chief Strategy Officer from Precision in Healthcare. Can't hear Dr. Lowe, but I see the question from Dr. Richard uh, Jones on the chat box. Um, and his question, I'll just read it out for those who are just connecting aud by audio. He asked, are there particular directions for research going forward, um, given your observations on changes in mortality? Um, well, I'm not the actual uh, researcher for this. The person who did it is Professor Ng Chu Wan. So I want to give her credit for this. Um, I think it's, it's very, uh, it's a very 
important insights. So first, I want to check that it's not artifactual um, and just look at the trends for a longer time. Make sure we are looking at uh, really uh, high quality data. And then I think she has actually given some age breakdowns. Um, and what I'll roughly say is that uh, it has effect. It has, I believe, the top of the top of my head, the reductions are in most of the age groups, including the elderly, including uh, people who are above the age of 20 to 60 and including people who are 60 and above, um, but less impact on people who are under 20, I believe, is the, is the, is the finding. Um, so I think we look at all the, all the kind of associations uh, that the mortality has had, like what, what is it, males or females, where, what ethnicity, um, what kind of causes of deaths. Um, we'd like to study that first uh, because that's just available from the same data set in a, in a sense. Um, and then to try and build from that. So if you're finding that it's particular demographics which are affected to try and generate a hypothesis and, and test it out. But uh, I think, um, I, I hope what one message uh, that that came uh, from this presentation is that we have quite a wide open slate when it comes to research uh, in Malaysia. There's a lot, uh, uh, there's a lot of opportunities to dig out what's happening, not just in the healthcare sector, um, not just health sector data sets, uh, not just administrative data, not just online surveys. Look beyond the health uh, sector and and use your imagination and your creativity because I think this is the period where we can really throw out a lot of. Uh, traditional research methodologies only and try and think about imaginative things. Uh, just like when you do solar research, you actually use very, very different instruments. It's just a, a totally different ball game because of the potential harm. That's it from me. I think we lost the moderator. Let me just read out the questions from uh, Dr. Zukanians. Uh, yeah, just asking your opinions, uh, Dr. Yap. Uh, of our health system researcher capacity and capacity to tag the temporal golden opportunity. And the next question is, uh, you know, um, from Nicholas. Uh, first of all, Nicholas would like to thank you for your insightful talk. Um, Nicholas is from ICR and he would like to ask on how much resources should, be a, should a country optimally dedicate or spend to plan or set up measure to cushion negative impact of a future pandemic of this scale. Uh, Dr. Yap, are you able to, to hear me? Yes, I heard your, both your questions from Dr. Zul and Dr. Nick. Uh, I'm just also trying to think how to answer it. So Dr. Yeah. Zul, thank you very much for your question. And if I understood correctly, you're just asking me what my opinion is of the current health research capacity uh, for the Ministry of Health and how, how able it is to, in a timely way, collect the required data. Well, I've not actually worked in the NIH uh, CRC directly, but I've interacted with a lot of very talented people from, from, from these uh, institutions. I have a lot of great respect for them. I think in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, brain power, I think it's really all there. I think what I tried to, to mention is that the ministry is, is broader than just a research entity and it can use its tentacles in, for example, the way it regulates the private sector uh, to, to sort of get information, not only information for regulatory purposes, but even information which is required to inform policy. Uh, so I think it's not the human element within the, within the ministry, which would be its uh, limiting factor. It's actually uh, access to wide amounts of data and actually the freedom just to, to work on it, uh, uh, not just individual small portions of the data set, but, in the, but, but to actually just work more broadly 
on, on, on research topics that interest you and not to be ring fans into particular topics um, and to actually have a little bit of a more a competitive uh, uh, dimension between researchers. So it's not like we are allocating you this topic and you have the monopoly of it, over it, but to allow everybody to just think of new ideas and if they've got it and if another person wants to overlap with them, well, let's see who comes up with the better research uh, paper, you see. So I think a, a dimension of competition, uh, openness and just allowing more data. Uh, data really fuels the, the technology of the future. I'm sure we'll hear, from, we'll hear from Richard Jones about how important data is. It's like the, it's like the raw material for, for artificial intelligence. So if you don't have data, then that's going to limit our research. Uh, Dr. Nick from ICR, thank you very much. I understand your question is on how uh, a normative question on how much resources we should allocate to prevent uh, a pandemic in the future. I was not sure if you, you meant to mitigate, like to prevent a pandemic versus when a pandemic happens, how to mitigate its negative impact. Um, I don't have a normative answer to this. Uh, I wish I did. Uh, um, well, I think we need to really invest in our, our global institutions. Um, I think uh, we, we can't just leave them high and dry. I think it really, the, whatever has happened now has really highlighted to me the importance of these, the importance of collaborating. Um, so I've mentioned two things which are not specifically a question of resources, but I've mentioned something which is uh, global partnerships, which I think is really important. For individual countries, yes, you can invest in surveillance and you can invest in uh, research capacity. That's great. I don't have a normative uh, suggestion as to how much should be actually spent on it. Um, but I would say it's like we can only do this if we if we work together uh, collaboratively. Um, so that would be my, my main comment on mitigating the negative impacts of a pandemic which has already happened. I think that's really something for a society to decide on its on its own. Um, uh, but what I would also draw back to one of the key points that I wanted to make is that health does not exist in isolation, right? So even if you are really trying to improve health, you have to think more broadly about non-health, the non-health sector, education, nutrition, um, uh, livelihoods, all these, all, these, all these count towards improving health. Uh, I think I've taken up quite enough time already. Thank you very much. Hello everyone. My name is uh, William. You also can call me uh... Law. I'm a senior pharmacist uh, from ICR. Uh, during the last few months, I've been doing a modeling work for, to support the decision and strategy planning for the governments. Okay. So um, thank you for giving me this slot to talk about modeling and uh, try to resolve some fact and myth about modeling. So while waiting for my slide to be on. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you for your self-introduction. I want to, just to check, I'm the moderator. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, sorry for that. I had, we had some technical glitches here. So everyone is introduced. So please, uh, while we are waiting for the slides, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Law Kimboon, for your presentation. We are looking forward and we have a particular interest in modeling and projections and WHO both, both for disease burden but also the disease trajectory and the health system's impact. So thank you very much and over to you. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, uh, we, we know that you know, the pandemic took place a few months ago and uh, during these few months, uh, many lies, myths and facts were actually created. And uh, some can be resolved by using more links. But uh, before I proceed to present topics, I'd like to probably talk a little bit about modeling, trying to define what modeling is all about. 
for the audience before we can really talk uh, more about some of the important modeling output. Okay. So my topic today will cover a little bit about you know introductions about modeling in COVID nineteen, and we'll talk about. I would like to talk more about two important modeling output. The first one is uh, what is reproduction number. Why is reproduction number so important? Second, I would like to talk about the herd immunity. We heard about this approach, uh, you know, at the beginning, uh, at the initial phase of a pandemic, where some European country actually want to pursue herd immunity. Then uh, after that, we will run through some, uh, you know, a quick check about some myths and facts for uh, COVID-19. Okay. okay. Um, first of all, I would like to uh, make an introduction about modeling and uh, the transmission of COVID-19 caused by the novel coronavirus can be actually precisely captured by mathematical models because it follows certain patterns. Most of the infected individuals' health cases will change from healthy to unwell and then recover or die over a duration of time. Just by counting the number of individuals infected by the virus, a real-life model is formed. Okay. If you are aware, let me take some Malaysian as an example. Let us look at the second wave active cases uh, reported by the Ministry of Health. In a real-life model, we always have two important variables. First is the total number of cases. It is actually equal to the total number of individuals in a particular health stage. Second is the time or the duration. Uh, for COVID-19, of course, we are actually reporting daily data. So the duration or the time unit here is day. Let us look closely at the pandemic curve, the second wave active cases recorded from Malaysia. You can see at the beginning of the pandemic, the case went up exponentially. When we have the MCO, series of MCO implemented, trying to pull down, bring down the, the, the active cases. So this is a real life model, okay? So a real-life model is formed when all the cases are plotted over time. Okay, a real-life, however, a real-life model can't actually tell us much about the transition, uh, transmission dynamics, but it, it does reveal how individuals in their population react to a pandemic. Let's just take a look at the you know, statistic reported by the Worldometer. Uh, maybe we just take US for example. You see, by looking at the number we know, you know, uh, how compliant uh, populations uh, to the public health control measure during the pandemics. We know US is a country where people enjoy a lot of freedom. They have the freedom not to wear masks. They have the freedom not to practice physical distancing. And until now, you know, wearing masks in US is not so not compulsory. So th therefore, no, US also recorded the, you know, the highest number of cases as compared to other country. Okay. Yeah, sorry, my slide was stuck here. Okay, so um, now we have a real-life model. Let us take a look what is a mathematical model. Uh, the, by definition, a mathematical model for infectious disease is just a set of mathematical functions that describe a real-life model. And by solving those functions, it helps us to understand the transmission dynamic for, of an infectious disease like COVID-19. Here, I put down a few pictures for you. We have a real-life model at the... Uh, one corner of the slide. Then we have a mathematical functions. This is mathematical models. 
by solving those functions, we get an output. And the modeling output actually help us to study many aspects of, you know, of the transmission dynamic. We can actually use the modeling output to study the behavioral shift and associated outcome in the population. We can also use the output to study the effectiveness of interventions, uh, various control measures of treatments. We can also use the modeling output to predict the progression of trend of an infectious disease and to estimate the clinical and economic burden of a pandemic and to guide preparedness, strategy, decision-making, and even resource allocation during uh, the pandemic. My slide. Okay. So um, what is, uh, when, when, let us compare real-life model and mathematical model to understand it further. Uh, a real-life model is always very complex, you know, because the trend, uh, take a look, uh, we take an example of Malaysian cases. You see, the pandemic curve can be actually affected by age. It can be affected by public health intervention. It can also be affected by mutation. Uh, also, uh, you know, behavioral shift. They also uh, presented a regional difference. Uh, so, since it's very complex, how is it possible to use a mathematical model to actually describe it? In fact, we can't use a model to describe everything. We can't use a model to describe every single element that might affect uh, you know, a real-life model. Therefore, um, this is an example, you see? Okay, this is a, you know, a real-life model. When we try to model it with a mathematical model, there are always uh, regions that cannot be fully explained by a mathematical model. So in principle, what we are saying is all mathematical, all mathematical models are wrong, but some remain useful because it can generate uh, some specific and informative and useful output for us to study the pandemic. Okay. So uh, with this, uh, we end uh, you know, the short introduction about, about the modeling. Now I would like to talk a little bit specific about the reproduction number because the, this number looks uh, magical, uh, you know, in, uh, in controlling the pandemics. Okay, basically there are two types of reproduction number. First one is basic, uh, the symbol is R0. And the second one is current or effective. Uh, normally we use RT, T stands for the current time to represent it. And the basic reproduction number is defined as the average number of secondary cases generated by one infectious cases in which no control measures are implemented. Then the current reproduction number means the average number of secondary cases generated by infection cases in taking into consideration or account the effect of public health intervention implemented to control the spread of the virus. Okay, for Malaysia, I use the example of second wave active cases. Okay, during the outbreak of the second wave, by using the active cases, the R0 was estimated to be 3.5. This is uh, rather high for, for us. And uh, after the implementation of series of uh, movement control order, we managed to bring down the reproduction number to 0.3. But following that, we are still seeing some uh, cluster outbreak here and there because of imported cases. But in general, when a basic reproduction number is uh, bigger than one, cases will increase exponentially. Uh, when, uh, for an infectious disease, if the reproduction number is less than one, cases will decline 
and the pandemic or epidemic cannot take off. And the larger the R0, the harder to control the infectious disease. That's the reason why we spend uh, you know, about three to four months to bring down all the, you know, the active cases to a comfortable level. And to successfully eliminate an infectious disease just like COVID in a population, the reproduction number, the current reproduction number need to be controlled less than one. Okay, the reproduction number of COVID-19 for both R0 and RT for COVID-19, it can be easily estimated by a mathematical model. The R0 for COVID-19 in Malaysia were estimated to be 1.6 for the first wave and 3.5 for the second wave. And the current reproduction number can be monitored to assess the effectiveness of various control measures. Okay, before I talk further, I would like to introduce three concepts of parameter for a modeling to the audience. And these three parameters actually govern the spread of an infectious disease. First is the probability of transmission per contact. So when, it, when we are in contact with someone or somebody, if the persons carry a virus, what is the chances that the virus spread to us and cause an infection? This is actually summarized using the probability of transmission per contact of transmissibility. The second parameter is the rate of contact in the population. So on average, how many contacts uh, an individual can make in a day? So of course, the higher the rate of contact, the higher chance a person may get to, uh, you know, may be infected by the COVID-19 virus. The third one is the duration of infectionness. We know that when we catch a virus, the virus will re replicate in our body. And, uh, when the virus starts to be uh, released into the environment and infect others, that, that duration of time is called duration of infectionness. Okay, now I would like to say that factors affecting the transmission of COVID-19 are actually well captured by mathematical model in the parameters. So here I put out a SIR model. I would like you all to just focus on the red uh, alphabet, P, C, and alpha. These are core parameters. Actually the P stands for probability of transmission per contact. And C, of course, is the rate of contact. And alpha is actually given by one over the duration of infectionness. And the basic, oh no, no. And the reproduction number of an infective disease actually is, it summarizes all these parameters. So if you look at the formula, R equals to P times C over alpha. So actually it, it summarizes all the important parameters uh, that affect the transmission of COVID-19. Okay, and to successfully eliminate a disease, an infectious disease from population, the reproduction number need to be less than one. Let's look at the, all those public measure or control measure that affect the reproduction number. First, it's about uh, transmissibility. Wearing masks, maintaining uh, physical distancing, having hand washing, all this actually help to reduce the transmissibility or the transmission per contact in the population. How about ban of gathering, school closure, quarantine, contact tracing, or even targeted screening? All this actually help to reduce the rate of contact of infected individual to the public. At the moment, we don't have any effective measure that can reduce the duration of infectiousness. Uh, some MD, uh, you know, some treatments are used, uh, but it's not so uh, promising. So basically, we are trying to bring down the reproduction number of COVID-19 
by just targeting on the transmissibility and rate of contact. I would like the audience to imagine that we are actually on a tug war between uh, you know, uh, humans and the coronavirus. And just for Malaysia, for instance, we started the battles at uh, you know first wave, R0 equals to 1.6, and we won. Okay? But the second wave, the R0 is higher. Therefore, it took us you know, uh, you know, a lot of efforts to bring down the reproduction number to less than one. So the country implemented a series of uh, movement control order. Even now, wearing masks has become uh, you know, um, compulsory in uh, public uh, places. Okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. Have you won the war? In fact, RT less than one doesn't, doesn't really mean uh, winning the war or the battles. We can never win this uh, battle as long as the virus is still transmitting out there because we are in a global globaliz uh, globalization now and the world are more, uh, our population are well connected, you know. But we need to maintain, you know, the reproduction number less than one so that any outbreak or cluster outbreak is not sustainable. It can be controlled. So behavioral shift, new normals, SOPs, all the control measures actually help us to bring down the reproduction number. Okay. With this, uh, I ended you know, my, my uh, talk about the reproduction number. And I want to touch a little bit about the herd immunity. Uh, put it simply, herd immunity means group immunity. When a large portion of community become immune to an infection, for example, for COVID-19, the spread of virus become unlikely. As a result, you know, the infectious disease is eliminated. Herd immunity can be achieved through virus or referred as natural uh, immunity or vaccine. Okay, I would like the audience to just look at this, you know, figure of this picture in order to understand how herd immunity uh, uh, strategy help to protect, you know, some people who are not immune to an infectious disease. As you can see, immune people form a barrier to the spread of coronavirus and therefore prevents the transmission of COVID-19 to others. So this is how herd immunity works. Okay, to have an effective herd immunity, a certain percentage of population must acquire the immunity. This is referred as herd immunity level. And the level is the percentage of population that must be immune to ensure that a virus will not cause an outbreak. And uh, it can be estimated using a modeling approach and the herd immunity is really given by one minus one over the basic reproduction number. Okay, and for COVID-19, assuming the, R, the basic reproduction number is three, and the herd immunity level that must be achieved in order to take away COVID-19 is as high as 67%. It really means at least 67% of a population must be immune to stop the outbreak of COVID-19. And to me, this is actually a huge uh, effort. Okay, let's compare, you know, uh, uh, acquiring herd immunity through natural immunity or through vaccinations. In fact, to acquire herd immunity, uh, effective herd immunity through the, the virus itself is a very dangerous approach. First, it is uncontrolled. We think we can control, actually we can't. When a virus spread is very hard to control and the outcome also cannot be an, uh, easily anticipated. 
And in fact, by exposing the, uh, the population to the virus, we are directly encouraging mutation to take place. Of course, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to become symptomatic. They are going to face complications such as death and they require treatment. Is our healthcare system or healthcare system in any country ready for this approach? And last but not least, the immunity acquired through natural immunity or the virus itself is uncertain. And more research needs to be carried out in order to confirm that, you know, by acquiring natural, natural immunity through the virus, the immunity can actually in turn prevent us from secondary infections. Okay. So this is the reason why many Western countries have stopped this herd immunity approach. And um, a little bit of fact about herd immunity in COVID-19, it is not just a viable option. Okay. So with this, I, I end my lecture on the herd immunity. Okay. Now let us run through some myths and facts about COVID-19. In fact, certain facts, there is no straightforward answer for it. For example, this is uh, one of the famous one. Does 5G not mobile, uh, mobile network spread COVID-19? Of course not, you know. 5G mobile networks do not spread COVID-19. You know, virus is, uh, you know, biological particles. How can virus travel on, you know, radio wave? But somehow, in, uh, I think in a lot of Western country, you know, uh, people tend to believe that 5G mobile networks spread COVID-19. How about drinking methanol and ethanol can prevent or cure COVID-19? Of course, this remains as a myth, you know. In fact, drinking methanol, ethanol or bleach does not prevent or cure COVID-19 and can be extremely dangerous. I hope we are clear on this. Oh, how about introducing bleach or disinfectant into your body? Uh, you know, well, this is a famous one because uh, it comes from, you know, the most powerful person in the world. And uh, the fact is spraying or introducing bleach or another disinfectant into your body will not stop you from being infected by COVID-19 and it can be very deadly and dangerous. Please don't try this. The next one, how about whether hydroxychloroquine can treat COVID-19? In fact, study shows that hydroxychloroquine does not really add, you know, a significant clinical benefit into treating COVID-19 but more research are coming. So uh, we shall actually wait for that. Uh, last, but uh, this is not the last one. I think it is the sec uh, second last one. I think is, this is quite relevant to Malaysia because uh, here in our country, we tend to have a lot of flies and mosquitoes here and there. So um, do housefly and mosquito transmit COVID-19? In fact, no evidence shows that COVID-19 virus can be transmitted to housefly or mosquito. But I would strongly propose uh, someone to take on this as a research in order to prove that. Uh, some people may advocate, uh, you know, that food, certain food can prevent COVID-19. For example, eating garlic. Can, uh, does eating garlic can prevent uh, COVID-19 virus? Of course, no evidence has shown that food actually helps to prevent uh, COVID-19 vi uh, COVID virus. Last but not least, uh, do younger people less, uh, less susceptible to the COVID-19 virus? 
I think in terms of susceptibility, uh, all age are the same. The only difference is the complications. People of all age can be infected by COVID-19. Okay. So uh, with this, I end my uh, symposium lecture and I hope you all enjoy it. Has mentioned about uh, interested to know more about Sweden's approach with the herd immunity, right? I think uh, Sweden's uh, implemented herd immunity, but it's a, in a controlled manner. But uh, as far as I know, one of the principal scientists actually has declared, uh, you know, that the country uh, is facing failure in, you know, implementing the herd immunity approach. I think uh, it's just uh, not possible to control the spread of virus. Okay, the second question is, uh, how long into the pandemic before you managed to acquire enough data to prepare a proper model with acceptable accuracy? Okay, we did our modeling uh, with all the data we can up to May, I think uh, three months data. I, I would like to say, of course, uh, the more data you have, the more accurate the model will be, okay? But it is generally, generally, we would like the data point to, to have at least three weeks data point. At least three weeks data point. It also depends on your modeling approach. If you design your model very well, that the model is fitted to most of the data point that, uh, that you can get, then you will have uh, acceptable accuracy. Yeah. Okay, another question is, uh, the mutation is occurring. Will it affect the effectiveness of the new vaccines? Okay, uh, we know, uh, you know uh, we have, uh, I think, more than 100 candidate vaccine. Some vaccines are very robust because and it can be used for different variants of different mutated viruses. Uh, I don't think this is an issue. It really depends on the design of the virus. And uh, for certain virus, broad spectrum virus, I think it can, it can, even though there is a mutation, protect the population. Okay. Uh, yeah, th Ida, thank you. Thank you, William. Uh, it seems that the Telok is offline currently, so we are going to move to our third speaker, that is uh, Dr. Richard Eddy Jones, the President and Chief Strategy Officer from C2AI. Uh, he'll be talking on artificial intelligence to predict avoidable harm in COVID-19. Oh, Dr. Lo is here. Hello, Dr. Lo. Over to you. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. So, thanks for taking over. I had some uh, technical glitches here. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, some very interesting um, talks already so far. Um, I wish I was back in Malaysia. Um, sadly, that's not possible at the moment. But uh, today I'm going to talk to you about AI and some insights, some real world insights into what is going on in hospitals, um, uniquely powered by AI and large data, as the previous uh, esteemed speakers have mentioned. If we look at avoidable harm as a generalization, in different countries, it's a significant problem. Uh, the US being perhaps the most expensive healthcare system in the world has the, the largest problem. They have $750 billion annually of waste with up to 25% of spending um, being wasted and a huge amount of avoidable harm. Now, avoidable harm means things really that you would like not to happen in a hospital, but would still occur. And th those are things which 
leads to issues for patients, but it also leads to issues to do with cost and to do with availability of capacity. So what I'm going to be talking about today is, is this journey from COVID-19 management back to, on the right-hand side, what we call steady state. And I'm going to give you some very specific examples about things which, which basically work in the real world. These are systems applied in hospitals or with national governments. Um, without going into too much detail, these are ones which are um, perhaps most importantly, one of the 10 essential digital health ideas for UK national um, COVID-19 response. So we are showing things here which are not um, the same type of clinical research which has been done by my esteemed colleagues. These are things which are working in practice uh, and are being deployed. So a different kind of insight. This comes in terms of the, the data set from the world's largest referential data set. That's 140 million patient records from 46 countries, 30 years of research, 11 countries that we work in. But let's get on to really what we are able to, to see happening at different points. So the first is that we have systems which can identify the variation in hospitals that are leading to variations in mortality. We see in one hospital mortality of 20%, we see in another hospital mortality of 43%. And our systems can understand why that is happening. The reason for that is that the specificity and sensitivity of the systems enables us to recognize even in the best US healthcare systems, 90% of avoidable harm and clinical variation, which typical monitoring and reporting systems do not see. Uh, a lot of the things which go on in hospitals are omissions to treat um, or failures to escalate patients. And typically monitoring systems are looking for serious errors, et cetera, reportable incidents. So let's actually look at how this, this works in practice. With that large data set, we have been able to develop a number of AI algorithms and have been able to hone those over the last 12 years. What that enables us to do is to predict for every patient what their risk level should be, considering all of their diagnoses, all of the conditions, all of their patient journey. But this is available from coded data in hospitals, so is working on a 30-day delay. And that's why some of the things I'm talking to you today about have never been discussed publicly. This is the first time that we will actually give these um, insights based on the new COVID-19 coding. Typically with the risk adjusted outcomes, um, both for mortality and for complications, we can then report back to the hospital, which can identify root causes and can then very simply do the important things, reducing avoidable harm and mortality, um, the variation, readmissions, etc. Now, this is not a scientific graph. This is a PowerPoint graph just to try to give you an idea about what we are looking at. We cover 90% plus of inpatient care, but on the surgical side, for example, from a baseline risk, there will be various um, operative risk aspects, physiological variables, surgical variables. There's then the physio physiology underlying of the patient, the comorbidities that they have, and we can very accurately identify then what their risk level should be. So what does that enable us to do? At the top, this is a, the real life raw mortality for a hospital. Now, of course, a hospital in a tertiary patient area will be very different from one in a, um, a very rural area. 
it would be very different from a specialist hospital. This is real world figures from a hospital we were asked to look at and at the top we came in at um, point B and then continued to monitor them because there was a concern about the mortality level that had been seen in February 2017. And the question was at that point, why is the mortality so high? When we did the risk adjustment though, we have an observed to expected ratio of one. If, if that's the case, then you're doing as we expect. If the OE ratio is higher than that, you are doing worse than we expect. And if it's below, you're doing better. At point A, our risk adjustments basically showed that they'd had a very complicated case mix of patients and they were doing an okay job. It wasn't exceptional, but it was on the OE ratio of one. Actually, at point B was a concern. Though the overall mortality was better, they were dealing with a much simpler case mix of patients. And this, as I say, is derived by individualized risk assessment, patient by patient, to understand what the risk should be, both for mortality and for complications. There's a lot more to life than death. So this is the kind of insight that we're able to provide, and this is the reason that we were the um, engine behind the Kia review in the UK and various other um, senior government studies. What we do for hospitals is then to provide them with um, high-level inf information about how they have worked in terms of amenable deaths. I'm going to take that phrase from the, the uh, first speaker's uh, presentation. So if we look at the middle line, we can see that with three red traffic lights next to it, neurosurgery has an issue. We can then drill down into the individual consultant performance, drill down into complications. So thrombosis there is above what we'd expect and also track uh, avoidable harms. Something like 200 variables that we're actually tracking on a 30-day retrospective um, basis with hospitals. Okay, that's the system. What have we learned? So we've looked using the COVID-19 coding with this exceptionally high accuracy that we have and we've been checked by Carolyn, Skirn, Imperial, etc. Um, there are major variations in COVID-19 treatment between hospitals, a couple of which, um, to, be, to be clear, are so sensitive that we, we really cannot share them. However, what we've been able to do is to verify that some of the shielding conditions which have been specified are completely correct and some of them are myths. So for example, hypertension does not have a significant impact on the risk-adjusted mortality from COVID-19. Uh, diabetes does not have a significant impact on the risk-adjusted mortality from COVID-19. This is not um, a large research project. This is a, a system that's been in operation for 12 years in these hospitals, risk-adjusting for individual patients and now able to risk-adjust for the COVID-19 uh, coding. A key issue globally is acute kidney injury, and I'll talk a little bit more about some of the numbers that come with this. Two practical next steps that come with this. The first is that um, you can deploy the system for strategic planning at a national level to identify best practice, but also hospitals which will be struggling, which will need enhanced capacity as we move towards uh, further waves. The second is that by essentially acting like, almost like noise cancelling headphones you have perhaps in an, uh, an aircraft or you have it personally, by cutting through the noise, we can identify where vaccines are being tested in hospitals, where the variation is due to the vaccine's performance, and essentially null out the noise from the patient's comorbidities, hospital quality of care, etc. So we think we're going to be able to, with pharmaceutical companies, accelerate the time to get to a vaccine development. 
The second part is really focusing on AKI. So we have up to 25% of ICU capacity being blocked by avoidable conditions. Huge direct costs that come with these. But let's just name them first of all. Um, acute kidney injury extends hospital stay by six days, hospital acquired pneumonia by eight days. Uh, that adds up. This is the extension of length of stay in addition to the normal length of stay that you'd see with a patient. How serious is this? Well, annual deaths in the UK alone from these two conditions is 140,000. It's about 700,000 in the US. Uh, and what we have seen again from our hospital monitoring on 30 day retrospective system that sits there using the clinical coding, not disruptive, doesn't require integration. Um, we've seen a two to three times increase in AKI across the COVID cohort and non-COVID cohort. We've seen hospitals with as high as 36% of COVID patients um, with hospital acquired AKI and with a mortality rate of 28%, reported research-wise, that means that 10% of COVID-19 patients could be dying from hospital-acquired AKI. Why is this? Well, um, there's a bit of a lost art of fluid balance globally, but that's a, a, another, another challenge. If you can resolve these issues, if you can reduce them by 50%, you can save 70,000 lives in the NHS, you could save 350,000 lives in the US. Um, in very simple terms, this is exactly what we've been able to, to do on a hospital by hospital basis. Reduce those conditions by 50% using a preventative app that I'll come on to in a second. But why is, the, why is it important to free capacity? So this again is a, um, a piece of research taken from these systems that are helping hospitals in 11 countries. If we look on the left-hand side, the percentage of critical care beds as a percentage of inpatient beds is increasing from A uh, sorry, it's decreasing from A down to D. Uh, we also have an option about whether there's HDU step-down care. On the right-hand side, we're the same patient cohort. Okay, so we've, we've nulled out any variations in patients because we automatically risk adjust. Across those four scenarios, we can see that in scenario A, we are just below that OE ratio, the observed to expected ratio of one for mortality. As we get up towards D, we are at 1.6, which is enormous in our world. So freeing up capacity in HDU and ITU is important. So what we're talking about in terms of doing this is we've deployed this app. Uh, it enables clinicians and nurses to, on point of admission or on change of condition, to basically click some radar buttons or to, to, to enter a checklist, which will provide a risk of the patient actually acquiring the condition. So this is not waiting until the horse has bolted. This is saying, let's do this in advance, identify patients, triage them by risk, and then have specific uh, actions we can take to reduce the likelihood of them getting those conditions. Now, to be clear, there's a certain amount of work involved, but it's a lot less work than looking after a patient for six days or eight days. And let's think about the typical 15-day cycle for a COVID-19 patient. Two HAP patients require eight days extra length of stay. That's one COVID-19 bed you do not have available. In some countries, that means it's one COVID-19 mortality extra. With AKI, it's six days. It's two and a half AKI patients equals one COVID-19 stay. So this is important that we get this right. And we've been able to, across um, different countries, 
reduce acute kidney injury overall and hospital acquired pneumonia by 50%. Just to be clear, community acquired AKI, we cannot have any impact on whatsoever. You come in with AKI, you still have AKI. What we are doing is we are, uh, in some cases, pretty much eradicating hospital acquired AKI. So it's simple, it's deployable tomorrow, two minutes to download, one minute to use, and 30 seconds to do the evaluations. And this will have a significant impact on mortality, simply for the conditions themselves, but also in terms of availability of hospital beds. So practical next step, um, deploying that kind of app can save up to 20% of ICU capacity and in the UK, um, thousands and thousands of lives. Third step, we have to get back to um, how we were before the, the pandemic. That means managing the non-elective or the, um, sorry, the non-urgent or elective surgical backlog. And obviously we've got to do that in an optimum way possible. In the UK, and um, I, I can't say that we've managed this crisis particularly well, um, we now are looking at potentially 10 million patients on an elective surgical list. Who should be first? Who should be second? Who should be optimized before they have an operation? So again, this is a, uh, an application which is available to uh, a, a point of care, either on a tablet or on a phone. There are roughly 4 billion combinations that we are looking at. So any surgeon or anesthetist who says that they can do this with an ASA score, where there are five variations, is perhaps um, optimistic. You basically put in any variables to do with the type of operation and the physiology of the patient, whether that is non-normal, uh, takes 30 seconds, 45 seconds. This will produce a detailed report with the risk of mortality and the risk of death of the patient. This is on an individualized basis. So you know, A, how to look after the patient post-operatively and B, patients that should be operated on, uh, sorry, should be optimized before operations. How does this resolve that third phase that we're talking about within the pandemic? Well, we have at the top there the, the issue of, of how we probably are gonna go about it in many countries. We'll have that backlog of surgical patients. There'll be months of individual appointments and delays, and there'll be a non-optimal order, which means that people will be harmed, people will die, and it will take a long time to clear the backlog. Or we can simply use, <clears throat> if you like, the, um, the meta version of that system I just talked to you about, and use that to triage. Uh, uh, Richard, sorry to intercept. Can you speak a, a little bit louder? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. How is that? So, um, with this with this system, we will be able to um, essentially triage up to 10 million or 20 million or however many patients. And in the bottom left hand side, there we have this. Um, this is the non-optimized list but we have the different potential operative types. Patient ID is, is, is uh, pseudonymized in this version. And we also suggest who might be optimized. And then at the click of a button, the clinician can actually see the detailed risk of mortality, risk of complication, and the uh, complications both directly and also late that may occur. Um, so simple terms, the most important thing is clinician engagement. So the high level principles that we, we think are important, the ethical, ethical use of AI, um, providing AI to companies that either already have the capability, um, sorry, data to companies that either already have the capability or that you, you essentially can trust because there are plenty of people creating a lot of noise at the moment about what they might want to do. 
and certainly um, keep the clinicians on your side because they are the people who will either be able to support any implementations or who will normally quite sensibly block any such implementations. And that's pretty much all I've got to say for the moment. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for, for the, your presentation. It, I think I'm sure there are many questions. Um, why the trickling in? Um, maybe just uh, for clarification questions. Um, let me see it, look at the chat. Um, for a, a question to Richard. So the, the system you're describing and the work you've been doing in Malaysia would require that the healthcare facilities are all, the hospitals basically are linked uh, with uh, patient medical records, right? Or you have uh, some, <clears throat> and someone keys in uh, the basic data you, you would like to have uh, to, in, in order to enable your algorithms to run. So the question is, um, what is the input and what's the magnitude of investment required? Like looking at Malaysia, we have about 1,000 or a bit more hospitals and about 20% of those are currently having electronic, electronic medical record or a little bit more probably. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, I'll try and speak as loudly as possible. My apologies for the, the issues with the sound. The um, the issue with electronic patient records is for the retrospective system. So where you have um, an EPR, the system that monitors mortality and complications, it takes between two to five days to get the right format of data out of those systems. But otherwise, it is not a complex integration. The preventative tools for AKI and HAP do not require any integration whatsoever. They are an independent download. They can be downloaded onto iPad, Android, <clears throat> tablet, or phone and used without any um, recourse to, to patient data. So you could be operating with those in uh, two, to, two to three minutes. So any questions from the audience? Uh, I believe we have many clinicians there. So uh, that's maybe interesting to look at using applications, preventative tools, uh, to and algorithms to help uh, relieve some of your work when you do your screening or assessment. So the question from the audience comes, um, I would like to ask, can the EI predictive tool be generalized <laughs> to the Asian population, given that your data used to build the algorithm is mostly derived from data in the Western population, particular UK, that's from Nicholas <clears throat> Hingyi Liang. 20% um, of the data comes from Asia Pac. We, are in, we get the data from 46 countries and we have <clears throat> basically shown that ethnicity at the point of admission into hospitals is a uh, relatively low level factor. It is one that we consider in certain key cases, but uh, yeah, so 20% of 140 million cases that we have in our data set are from Asia Pac, and our chief medical officer has um, advised governments in the in the region. So we are um, we believe that we have tools which are uh, applicable for pretty much every country in the world. And we have another question from Dr. Kishan Kanan: um, Can AI be used to interpret neurological manifestations in CT scans of the brain? 
That's a really great question. Um, I'm a little bit outside my, um, my personal comfort zone then. But essentially, yes, that should be the kind of thing where any kind of scan, visual or electronic of anything in the human body, um, that is a perfect opportunity for AI to look at the large data set and to identify um, correlations between outcomes and the, the input data. Uh, so yes, that should ideally be um, the kind of thing which, um, which AI is built for. One more question from Dr. Kim An Git. Are you considering using new standards such as FHIR to feed data into your prospective models? Um, I, I don't know what is FHIR, probably you would know. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would love to say that I do, Dr. Lowe, I don't. Um, let, me, let me explain the, the, the predictive models. What we are doing is using that large data set and we are creating algorithms and then we are doing things like ROC curve testing to look for specificity and sensitivity of the outputs. So very specifically with COVID-19 and mortality, we take the clinical coding, sometimes which will explicitly say that there is a condition, but many times we are triangu triangulating from that based on analysis we did over uh, six years, looking at patients' notes, PAS systems, etc to be able to work from clinical coding data. So the systems that we have for um, prediction are all built around the clinical coding that we have from real hospitals. And we are able then to um, build those predictive models and to adjust those as new techniques come in um, and as issues occur. So the, the big one is, is fluid balance, which is something which should be very, very well managed, certainly was 40 or 50 years ago, but the uh, probably the reticence to cannulate and catheterize patients is now having a, a detrimental effect. And I spoke to one COVID-19 emergency nurse who said they struggle with fluid balance because patients don't want to drink because they're perhaps got res respiratory issues and they start coughing. And of course, the simple answer is to give is to put up a drip. And I, I, I don't think I've ever been as shocked in any conversation in the clinical context as I was that day. So um, there's, some, there's some lost arts that we need to uh, certainly get back to and fluid balance globally is a, uh, is a killer. Uh, HL7, sorry, I beg your pardon. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Git, for that. HL7 data, yes, we can take that. So for pharma trials where we are going to be um, verifying pretty much in real time the efficacy of vaccines, so finding out the underlying uh, performance of the vaccine rather than the, any improvement or um, degradation being due to variation in hospital care or comorbidities, we can take HL7 coding directly. My apologies. Thank you very much. Are there any more questions? We are, I think, at 4 p.m. Um, we had a very exciting session um, looking at uh, hearing about uh, the collateral potential collateral damage or, but let's say, collateral questions which are arising in public health due to the COVID-19 response uh, by Wei Aund. Um, we learned about modeling and projections, um, COVID-19 and some mythbusters from Mr. Lowe. And uh, we heard about, uh, very exciting about how to use uh, artificial, artificial intelligence and algorithms uh, for preventive uh, 
yeah, for prevention actually in hospital care. Um, maybe just uh, a key message or a key question uh, from all the panel is that uh, maybe to the audience that there are a lot of questions which are arising not only for the implementation but also how to use all these what you have heard today to shape your further research in clinical practice and to improve your clinical practice. So uh, thank you very much.